The inflation of the 1970s is arguably the most important monetary event in U.S. history since perhaps the Great Depression. At its peak, consumer prices increased well over 10% a year, which put strain on households and contributed to the general economic malaise that came to define the decade. To this day, economists disagree about what caused the inflation. Even so, there's essentially no disagreement about the solution. In 1980, Fed Chairman Paul Volcker used aggressive policies that brought the inflation rate down significantly. As investors, it's imperative that we study the inflation of the 1970s. Some portfolios were amplified and others were destroyed during that time period. The lessons from that time are worth learning. With us today, we have a special guest, David Frederick, Senior Vice President and Director of Wealth Planning at First Bank Wealth Management. David is also an investor in multifamily assets and has experience as a passive investor in multifamily syndication. Thank you for joining us today, David. Thanks, Matt. I am truly glad to be here. I look forward to our discussion. I think we're going to be talking about the same topics, but maybe coming at them from a couple of different points of view. Great. So before we start, can you tell us a little bit about your edu educational background? Sure. Um, well, I wear many hats in my education and profession. Uh, at core, I'm an attorney. I have my law degree from Washington University in St. Louis, and I stayed around and did a victory lap and got an extra law degree in taxation. Uh, I became a tax attorney, but left that to become a wealth planner at First Bank Wealth Management, as you noted. But it, that's just my day job. In addition to that, I also have a master's degree in economic history from the London School of Economics. And I use that as an adjunct professor of economics at Washington University in St. Louis. So many hats, all in uh, finance and economics. Thanks, David. Glad to have you on the podcast. We're going to structure this episode in order to answer four basic questions. How did the inflation of the 1970s start? What were its effects? How did it end? And what can we learn from the inflation to make us better investors in the future? But before we get started, David, would you give us a quick refresher on what consumer price inflation is and how it works? Certainly. So at its most core level, inflation is the natural growth of price over time. For instance, think of a loaf of bread. In the 1950s, it would have cost 12 cents. In the 1980s, it would have been $1.19. In 2010, it would be $2.79, the same loaf of bread. That natural growth in price is often connected to the monetary supply. So as the monetary supply increases, the relative value of the money goes down and prices will go up. Now, this is something that can be controlled to some extent by the controller of the currency, like the Federal Reserve. The idea being that if they want to increase the monetary supply, they may increase prices, but they may also reduce unemployment rate um, along with it because the price of employing more employees will go down. Uh, therefore, there's an attempt to be able to control the unemployment rate along with inflation with the central bank, with the Federal Reserve. However, if, you, uh, if there is not the correct outcome from this, as we've seen, uh, it may actually send the economy into a tailspin if unemployment goes up and inflation goes up at the same time. And that's likely what we're going to be talking about here when we talk about the inflation in the 1970s. That's great. Thanks, David. So I'll kick us off with the first question, which is, how did the inflation of the 1970s start? So there are numerous opinions about how the inflation began, 
The most common is that the oil shock in 1973 created a shortage that drove up consumer prices across the board because petroleum is so integral to almost everything in the economy. Economists refer to this as cost push inflation. The idea behind cost push is that a negative supply shock, like the oil shortage, drives up consumer prices for an extended period. In response, workers demand higher wages to cover the increase in the cost of living. The increased wages do two things. It forces companies to lay off some workers, which increases unemployment, and it also forces manufacturers to increase their prices in order to cover their increased labor costs. This is a classic wage price spiral, and it gained significant popularity at the time because it provided an explanation for how both consumer prices and unemployment could increase together, which at the time was considered unlikely. Milton Friedman actually rejected the idea of cost push inflation. He reasoned that if the oil shortage was the main cause of the inflation, then prices should have increased across multiple countries at relatively the same level. This was not the case, however. The rate of inflation varied significantly across countries, even though they were all impacted by the oil shortage. Friedman argued that it was not the oil shortage, but rather it was the growth in the money supply that fueled the inflation. He famously quipped at the time that inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. The growth in the money stock started to accelerate in the late 1960s in response to expanding federal deficits associated with the Vietnam War and President Johnson's Great Society program. In the 1960s, it was common for the Federal Reserve to work with the Treasury to monetize these deficits. This was called even-keel policy, and it helped keep the federal government's borrowing costs under control. Essentially, the Treasury would announce an interest rate for a new issue of bonds. If not all the bonds were sold, the Fed was expected to buy them. These failures didn't happen often, mostly because the Fed provided ample reserves into the banking sector in order to make sure all the bonds were purchased. Once the bonds were issued, the Fed rarely withdrew the reserves that it had supplied. This expansion of bank reserves fueled a direct increase in the money supply by expanding the monetary base, and it also contributed to an indirect increase in the money supply by facilitating credit expansion through the banks. The problem could have been avoided by auctioning the bonds, which was a process started in the 1970s. Nevertheless, the money supply started to grow in the late 60s, largely because of the accelerating deficits that the Federal Reserve felt compelled to monetize. It's important to note that these accommodative policies began well before the oil shock of 1973. While economists still haven't reached consensus on the cause of the 1970s inflation, my personal opinion is that it was a combination of debt monetization by the Fed and the negative supply shock of the oil shortage. Interestingly, we find ourselves in a similar position today. The Fed has indirectly monetized the federal debt for over a decade through quantitative easing, and we've just had an enormous negative supply shock in the form of COVID-19. So the situation we find ourselves in today is in some ways eerily similar to that of the early 1970s. So David, you're an economic historian. What are your thoughts about the root causes of the 1970s inflation? Well, Matthew, I'm going to take your perspective on the monetization aspects, and I'm going to expand it a little bit in history and internationally. 
So let's wind the clocks back to the end of World War II. Now, when the Allied powers looked like they were going to win the war, uh, the, the economic minds of those uh, the Allied powers started to get together, and they wanted to come out of the war and not go straight back into the Great Depression, which had led up to the war. Part of the difficulties of the Great Depression were monetary difficulties, especially as the gold standard of the Great Depression was one that allowed for beggar thy neighbor policies and tricks and, and dirty, dirty machinations amongst the nations as they're uh, using the gold standard. So the allied nations of the West got together in 1944 at the Bretton Woods uh, Resort in New Hampshire and they came up with a new system, one that would allow flexibility, but one that would also still allow the stability of a good gold standard. The system worked like this. The Bretton Woods system worked like this, that the U.S. dollar would be pegged to gold at $35 per ounce. And then other international currencies would be pegged to the dollar, but would have some play in the joints so they could work within a range. The whole system would be governed essentially by some new international economic associations, notably the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, that would help to prevent and cure balance of payments problems with using emergency loans. And the Bretton Woods system was an interesting idea, and it worked as planned for exactly two years. In 1947, the Bretton Woods system went into effect. In 1949, the IMF nearly went bankrupt, having dispersed all the money that it had on reserve for these loans. So what to do? In 1950, the United States essentially took over for the IMF as the international central bank to, monitor, to help with the balance of payments problems that came about. And we started what was called the broken Bretton Woods system. With a broken Bretton Woods system, the United States became this economic hegemon that would allow dollars to flow out um, to keep rebuilding economies uh, flowing. Remember that Asia and Europe were rebuilding following World War II. As this happened, it, uh, the United States came to realize that one of their best economic exports was dollars themselves, exporting the stability and, and the the clear price stability of dollars to the rest of the world. The United States began to follow a policy known as benign neglect, meaning that the dollars would just flow out as needed and provide this international stability. The problem was, however, that the dollar was still pegged to gold. And now the dollar monetary supply in the world was starting to exceed the gold reserves. Everything came to a head in the early 1970s, such that by 1970, there was not enough gold reserve in the world to convert all dollars to gold. And they kept going. And in 1971, there was not enough gold on the face of the earth to convert all dollars to gold. So there was this big well up of inflation that was being held back by the ongoing dollar uh, convertibility to gold standard. But the cracks started to come loose in the early 1970s. And in 1971, I think it was Switzerland demanded to exchange its dollars for gold. And at the same time, in May 1971, West Germany decided to unpeg itself, the Deutschmark, from dollars. And at the end of that, President Nixon realized that the jig was up. There was no holding the dollar to gold anymore. And in August 15th, 1971, Nixon ended the peg to gold. 
that became permanent in 1973. And what happened with that was a gigantic bang as the, as the dam broke and the inflation flooded in and it went all without sort of this incremental approach. It came flooding in with the end of the gold standard. The oil shock in 1973, escalation of the Vietnam War, as you noted, Matt, uh, they started that tailspin that came along with the end of the gold standard and the start of inflation. Thanks for that explanation, David. So let's move on to the effects of the 1970s inflation. In my opinion, the most important takeaway in this category is not that all is that all prices did not behave in the same way. So in other words, there was not a general increase in prices across all consumer, pro consumer products or all asset classes. The stock market was devastated by the inflation of the 1970s. The S&P 500 peaked in late 1968, and it didn't regain its former highs until the 1980s. The inflation created a lost decade for the stock market, but at the same time, commodity prices soared. Farmland valuations also went significantly higher, increasing fourfold between 1970 and 1980. This was due in part to a large run-up in food prices. In the 1970s, um, it was primarily consumer prices and, com and commodities prices that were inflated. The 70s was a consumer price inflation more so than an asset price inflation, probably because the negative supply shock of the oil crisis initiated a self-reinforcing wage price spiral that impacted consumer goods first and foremost. The inflation we've seen over the last decade has been quite different. Consumer prices have remained relatively stable, but asset prices have risen dramatically. There's been no wage price spiral, but instead quantitative easing aimed at protecting the balance sheets of banks and corporate borrowers. This has inflated asset prices more than consumer prices. I personally think this will continue to be the case going forward. Corporate debt levels are at all-time highs, which makes it imperative for the Federal Reserve to continue inflating asset prices to prevent a balance sheet recession like the one Japan experienced in the 1990s. That said, the negative supply shock recently provided by COVID-19 may initiate a 1970s-style cost-push inflation in the coming years, not unlike the oil shock did in 1973. It is not out of the question that we may see both asset price inflation and consumer price inflation at the same time before the end of this decade, although I think there's a higher chance that asset price inflation will be the dominant force, particularly because the Federal Reserve has to keep consumer price inflation relatively low in order to manage the blended interest rate paid on the government debt. So those are my thoughts. What are your thoughts, David? Well, Matt, as a historian, I don't think I'm quite equipped to predict the future um, and predict price levels. My crystal ball is not nearly as clear as yours is, but I can point to a couple of really interesting connections between the 1970s stagflation we just talked about, as well as the, uh, the past decade of inflation or lack thereof uh, in the United States. Before I say so, let me tell a little bit of more background. As I mentioned at the beginning, the idea that the Federal Reserve can control inflation and in theory can control unemployment by increasing the money supply by way of decreasing interest rates. They increase the money supply that causes inflation to go up but should cause unemployment to go down. That's basic Keynesianism. And it's based on an idea called the Phillips curve. The Phillips curve is this inverse ratio that says as money supply goes up, inflation goes up, but unemployment goes down. Now, 
That's the orthodoxy in economics. But we see a couple of interesting examples. In the 1970s, as we're discussing, we see what's called stagflation. Inflation went up, but rather than allowing that massive amount of inflation to decrease the unemployment uh, supply, the, 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 the unemployment level, unemployment actually was high and going up at the same time. So the Phillips curve appeared broken in the 1970s, and this was puzzling to economists. And in fact, the, the pure Phillips curve lost vogue in the 1980s. Now, moving forward uh, 40 years into the 2010s, we have another strange case where the Phillips curve is once again busted starting in about 2008 or 2009. As you know, following the Great Recession in 2008, 2009, the Federal Reserve did everything it could to stimulate the economy by pushing more and more money into the economy, by lowering interest rates down to zero, creating what's called ZERP, which is the zero interest rate policy, uh, and through several rounds of quantitative easing. More and more and more money came flooding into the system. But there hasn't been consumer price inflation out of ordinary in the past 10 years. Now, it could be, as you say, Matthew, that that inflation went into asset prices and not into consumer prices. But again, economic orthodoxy would say that with all that new money flooding into the economy, it would be consumer price inflation would be the result. All this to say is that the Federal Reserve may need to do some soul searching and rethink its core assumptions especially as we stand in a zero interest rate policy world, which we may be going back to because of COVID. Likewise, all investors everywhere and holders of cash, people participating in the economy, should be aware that the value of their and stability of their investments depend, at least in part, on policymakers following economic theories, such as the Phillips curve, that do not always play out well in reality. So beware with your investments because we've seen the orthodoxy break at least twice in the past 50 years. Thanks, David. So let's move on to our third question, which is how was the inflation stopped? In, the, in late 1979, Paul Volcker became chairman of the Federal Reserve. By this time, inflation had gotten so out of hand that the federal government was willing to accept some unemployment in order to stop it. This was a major shift in policy. Throughout much of the decade, there had been no political will to stop inflation if it meant accepting a recession. Paul Volcker initially tried to combat inflation by raising the federal funds rate, which is the interbank lending rate. This failed and gold and silver prices soared after the rate hike announcement, reflecting a prevailing conclusion that the new Fed chairman was not willing to do what it took to bring inflation to heel. By October 1979, the situation was growing serious. Volcker decided to radically change tactics and increase reserve requirements at the banks. This strategy had the benefit of reining in credit growth at the source, but it was risky in that it departed from the normal policy of targeting the federal funds rate. Volcker's plan had the potential to beat inflation by constricting the money supply directly at the banks but at the cost of relinquishing control over short-term interest rates. He had no idea how high interest rates would rise, but the inflation had become so severe that major action was required. In short, Volcker's plan was painful but effective. Interest rates rose to a peak of 20% in the early 1980s, and the nation slipped into a severe recession. 
unemployment shot up to 10%, and there was public backlash against the Fed's policies. Nevertheless, Volcker stayed the course, and by the mid-80s, inflation had returned to manageable levels. Volcker's actions gave credibility to Milton Friedman's assertion that inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. To stabilize prices, Volcker had to directly limit the credit created by the banking system. So David, what do you think about Volcker's actions and the end of the inflation? Well, Matt, I'm going to agree with you on his actions and their effect, but I'm going to actually add a little bit of color to this. In economics, Paul Volcker is often thought of as a mythological figure, that he's bigger than life. And to give him a mythological analogy, people often think of him like Theseus, venturing into the labyrinth to slay the Minotaur. He was brave, he was bold, he put himself on the line, he fought nobly and, and struggled mightily, but in the end he was victorious and he found his way out of the labyrinth. But if we're holding Volker out as a mythological figure, the better analogy may actually be King Pyrrhus of Epirus. Um, King Pyrrhus, a little bit less known, was a Greek monarch who fought wars against the Romans. He won the battle of Heresia against the Romans, but he paid a heavy price for it as many of his best soldiers perished. And when a uh, messenger came to him and said that he had won the battle, he famously said, quote, one more such victory as this, and I will surely be undone. This is where we get the idea of a Pyrrhic victory. So it was costly. It was costly for Paul Volcker to take the steps that he did. And I mean terribly costly. Like you said, 10% unemployment, a protracted and severe recession, political attacks, civil unrest arising from it. And one of the most famous episodes of that was what's called the Tractorcade in 1979 or early 1980, where tractors, farmers brought their tractors and took over uh, large parts of, of the District of Columbia. It was brave of Paul Volcker to tackle stagflation the way he did. It was the right move to do, but it was painful and hard as well. And I'll tell you this, if we face another similar circumstance of stagflation like there was in the 1970s, I would suspect that we could, we could expect the recovery to once again be painful and hard and have protracted and long-term consequences. Thanks, David. Uh, I have to say, Paul Volcker is actually one of my personal economic heroes of a sort. I, uh, I've always respected the courage that he had to do what had to be done, even though it was really unpopular at the time. Uh, I think that really s speaks to his character, and it's, uh, it's a shame that he passed away last year. Yeah. So uh, to move on to our final topic, uh, what does the inflation of the 1970s tell us about investing today? And I'm primarily interested in David's view here, but for my part, I think the most essential thing to remember is that inflation is nuanced. Different inflationary episodes may impact certain prices more than others, but the underlying similarity is that an uptick in the growth rate of the money supply is a sign that the inflation rate may accelerate in the near term. And as I mentioned earlier, I think there's a good chance we will continue to see asset price inflation in the long run, and perhaps even consumer price inflation eventually. Asset price inflation rewards those who have an equity stake in real or financial assets, especially when those assets are leveraged with debt. Consumer price inflation seems to benefit commodities and agriculture most of all, or at least that was the experience of the 1970s. So David, 
Let's get your thoughts on the takeaways from the 1970s inflation. All right, Matt. Well, I opened by saying that I wear lots of different hats. So I'm going to take off my economic historian hat right now and put on my wealth planner hat. And I'll say that one of the core values of a wealth planner is diversify. Let me tell you this, that the values of your assets are often at the mercy of forces well beyond your control. So the value of money that you have in your bank account is at the mercy of the Fed, international rates, and the money supply. The value of stocks at the mercy of corporations, traders, and other forces of the market. The value of commodities at the mercy of the fates and the gods, because no one really knows why it goes up or goes down. The best anyone can do against this lack of control is to diversify their wealth. Holding a mixture of stocks, bonds, mutual funds, commodities, that is helpful. But real estate investing should be part of about everyone's portfolio. Real estate's the one thing they're not making anymore. It has real value to it. So I would, I'd say in light of the lack of control that we have over the economy and prices, that a diversified portfolio, including real estate, is the way that investors should go. Thanks for that, David. And we really appreciate you coming on the show today. And we're going to put David's contact information into the show notes for any listeners that'd like to reach out to him. Thanks, Matt. It's been a pleasure. And I really hope I get invited back. I'm sure we can make that happen. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this episode of Multifamily Economics. If you did, please leave us a review on iTunes, which will increase our visibility and help us grow. If you would like to discuss multifamily investing with me personally, please go to the contact us page on our website, darbyrosecapital.com. Thank you.